Welcome to the latest edition of Royal State of Mind. My name is Amiri Tella. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's edition of the show. Joining me on the line is Mr. Harold Jordan. He's been the senior policy advocate at the ACLU of Pennsylvania since December of 2007. That's the American Civil Liberties Union of PA. And he is also the author of Beyond Zero Tolerance, Discipline and Policing in Pennsylvania Schools, He's an editor of Know Your Rights, a handbook for public school students in Pennsylvania. And in general, he's been working at reforming and changing school discipline practices since 2008. Mr. Jordan, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, let's get started first and foremost by by kind of setting the foundation for today's conversation, uh, which is largely based around the school to prison pipeline excuse me, that, that exists in America. In your words, based on your research, your work, uh, how would you define and characterize or just generally describe the school-to-prison pipeline? Well, the school-to-prison pipeline you know, refers to, has come to refer to uh, a bunch of different systems and rules that result in large numbers of um, students uh, essentially losing their right to an education by being removed from school one way or the other, suspension, expulsion, uh, or by the action of, of police officers. And um, some of those young people end up in uh, the justice system either immediately um, or eventually. Now, when I say immediately, that that is pretty clear. Uh, like a, if a kid is arrested, uh, whatever, you know, they're in the system in some way, even if it's this juvenile justice system. But the but uh, equally important is sort of the long-term impact uh, when kids maybe don't go into the justice system immediately, but they end up being um, uh, sort of separated from school and in a way or to a degree that puts them at risk of eventually ending up in the justice system. So right, there's right. both the immediate pathway, but also the eventual pathway. Um, and, and these pathways have been studied extensively. We know that kids who are suspended multiple times are extremely highly likely to end up in the justice system within six to six months to a year of the time that they are excluded from school. There's a major study called Breaking Schools Rules, which looked at the records of a million uh, Texas students that uh, following them over a six-year period of time, and um, they were able to document that, that there is almost an immediate impact for kids who are suspended multiple times. So those are the kids who are really at, at highest risk there. And, um, you know, the thing that I would add to this is that this um, way of handling uh, student discipline represents to some extent a departure from the way that it has traditionally been done in the sense that um, what became super popular in the last uh, two and a half decades or so was was using uh, school removals by suspension, expulsion, whatever, simply removing a kid from school 
as the all-purpose solution to a wide range of issues and conflicts. Uh, and so the, 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 both the percentage of kids and the number of kids who've been removed from school, whether it's just one day or a year or ending up in a juvenile facility, um, escalated over a period of time. And it has just started to come down in the last two or three years. Now, how close is that related to the zero tolerance policies that you write about and and that you have covered over the course of your career? Because those, I, I think at least, those definitely contribute to the right. to the rise in in just school expulsions. Well, here, here's kind of the way that I mean, there's a direct relationship. Here's sort of the way that it worked. The original philosophy of of zero tolerance. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it goes back, you know, roughly about 20 years ago. The original philosophy of applying the zero tolerance in a school context is that you you need to remove kids from school uh, when they exhibit the most extreme, dangerous behavior, specifically in most instances involving the use of a weapon. Right. That was the original idea. It was originally something that in, intended to sort of keep firearms out of school. Um, um, and, uh, but but what, Im- what happened almost immediately is as states began to adopt versions of zero-tolerance laws, and all states have zero-tolerance laws. When I say a zero-tolerance law, I mean a law that says that, a kid, that it is mandatory that a kid be removed if X occurs. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, uh, when states began to implement that, they began to add all other, all, all, a whole range of, quote, offenses to that. So that you, at the extreme end of the spectrum, I mean, you've gone from just sort of policies, state laws um, that just prohibit firearms in schools to at the other end of the spectrum, uh, a bunch of state laws, I believe in about 20 states, where there's some kind of a statute that says that a kid could be criminally prosecuted for, quote, disturbing schools. I mean, it's called something different in, in different places. So if you think back to the, the well-known incident that was, that was all in the news and YouTube, et cetera, of the kid who had the cell phone in, the, in a South Carolina school, um, the, the school police officer was called, was known as a school, it's a type of school police officer called the school resource officer, right. was called and tried to grab the thing, grab the kid and flip her over on the floor. And, uh, and that made the national news. Um, the interesting thing was that, that, um, that uh, the statute under which the kid was prosecuted and the kid who videotaped it were prosecuted as this 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 um, South Carolina call law called the disturbing school statute. And it's the vaguest thing you could ever read. It doesn't, you know, refer to any specific behavior, but as if if you do something that's considered to be disruptive in school, you can be charged under South Carolina law with disturbing schools. That's the kind of thing you have on the books and about, you know, 1920 states. Uh, and then when uh, these zero tolerance policies were adopted by local school districts, they added a whole bunch of other behaviors to the list. And so we've gone from an attempt to keep 
guns out of school to to um, school policies and state laws that permit districts and indeed encourage and in some cases require districts to to remove kids from school under a fairly broad range of circumstances. Right. Um, you know, it, it's it's wearing uh, not wearing appropriate clothing to school uh, at least decades ago would probably get you maybe get a call to your parents or the school would give you something to put on over that or something like that. You know, nowadays it could easily end up as a four or five day suspension. What we also know from all of the research that's been done is that even if a kid doesn't end up in the justice system, they end up, uh, that kid ends up in many instances, in most instances, disengaged from school. Their relationship to school is never the same. Their relationship to academics, their performance goes down. So that there is a connection between suspending students and how engaged they become with school and with the education process. Even if they stay in school, they're less engaged. And of course, that affects their ability to get decent jobs later and educational options and things of that sort. So when we talk about zero tolerance, what we're saying is that that zero tolerance policies have gone from something fairly narrow that was focused on keeping guns out of schools to something incredibly broad. And so today, those of us who work in the field often talk about the culture of zero tolerance. The culture of zero tolerance has basically permitted and encouraged um, individual schools and districts to remove children from school for under a broad range of circumstances, not even the ones that are most dangerous, where there's a weapon or a threat of a weapon or anything like that. So today, I think this, the way to think about sort of the zero tolerance and even the school-to-prison pipeline, it's, it's, it's not just about guns, and it's not just about kids going directly to school. It's about uh, the, the use of this sort of exclusionary discipline where you just remove kids from school like that. Mm-hmm. So why, is, why does zero tolerance exist? Like we see all of the evidence that, and, and you published a full report, right? You had enough evidence in Pennsylvania to publish a full report about zero tolerance and the impact negatively. So what is the, what is the ex, uh, I guess, the explanation that these schools and school districts are giving to continue these zero tolerance policies? Well, it's a shifting set of rationales. So, you know, we, you, know, we, you know, it starts with, well, we want to keep uh, dangerous uh, weapons out of school. And so, you know, we're now beyond firearms. We're beyond, we, we, we go to the level of where in Pennsylvania, the law, the, the, the sort of anti-weapons in school law is so broad that it says, you know, there's a list of things you can't bring to school, but it also adds, or anything else that could be used as a weapon, or anything else that could be used to cause injury. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's it, it you know it goes into that realm, and then um, and and one could easily understand that you know there's some things that should not be in a school building, uh, and I would argue there's some kinds of some kinds of uh, implements and weapons that adults should not bring into school, whether it's the school police or anything else. I would argue that nobody should have certain kinds of things in, in, in schools. I understand that argument. Um, but then it gets to this broad, vague thing about controlling errant student behavior, that uh, we got to get the bad kids out of school so the good kids can learn. Uh, you know, that kind of an argument is, is a rationale for that, except that, what happens is that when you use the sort of 
when you when you institute policies that that permit and encourage sort of removal of large numbers of school students under a broad range of circumstances, what you end up doing is essentially is kicking kids out of school you do, with, with apples and oranges. So that you, you know, a kid who threatened somebody else with a knife uh-huh. might uh, suffer the same thing as a you know kid who uh, just talked back to a teacher because they felt insulted. Right. And so you 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 end up with a system that students perceive as unfair. Now, you know, you could say, well. What the heck does, does it care whether you know, who cares whether students feel it's unfair? There's some interesting sort of research that we, we've come to know on uh, about this whole added, this whole issue of student attitudes about discipline. Turns out that most students will accept discipline if they think it's administered fairly and evenly. Um, but what we found that was is that when zero tolerance policies came and when the culture of zero tolerance took off, you had um, uh, uh, discipline administered in a way that had a disproportionate impact on certain students. And so the conversation very much shifted to sort of race and ethnicity of the student and how two students could do essentially the same thing and have and it have different disciplinary outcomes. It shifted to also to, to schools adopting these rules which seem to prohibit certain styles of dress of students of a certain hue and things of that sort. So now we're having to look at the sort of micro issues of how actual discrimination happens um, on the individual school level in a day-to-day sense. Right. So if you, 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 we've literally seen situations, and the federal government, U.S. Department of Education, when it's investigated complaints brought against the school districts, some school districts have seen situations where, the, you know, they find that these clothing rules that have been implemented, you can't wear clothing acts, you know, are really intended to impact kids from a certain kind of cultural group that may tend to dress in a certain style, but those clothing rules may not be necessary in order to maintain good order in schools. And sometimes they will find officials that will say, you know, or, or somebody in the school will, will say that, well, they just wanted to get at those kids. So that the stated reason for having this clothing rule um, is not the actual reason. And um, so when government investigators have gone in and in response to complaints that have been filed with the government, they found that in some of those situations, that's what's happening. Right. That it's 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 a, a seemingly a legitimate way to really control the behavior of certain students. And we've so seen that you, oh, you you need to you know if you want to change that you need to step back from the whole thing and say well wait a minute are any of these rules necessary are there other ways of doing things that don't result in discriminatory treatment of students? Right. And we've seen that in society. This kind of transitions into my next question. Um, relating to mass incarceration, but we've seen in society how criminalization of uh, by certain presidents to to put a a, a a shine a magnifying glass on criminality, but focus on that definition that that clearly disproportionately impacts communities of color, as we've seen with mass incarceration, and then connecting that to the school to pipeline conversation. How does the school to prison pipeline affect mass incarceration? Do they work? hand-in-hand, hand, so to speak, conceptually? Well, 
I mean, I think there's some relationship, but I would be uh, cautious about um, making it too immediate or too direct. I mean, it's clear that, um, I mean, let's look at it from the sort of the incarceration end of it and then go back to the school end rather than looking at, at the pipeline from the school to, to, to prison. Let's look at it, you know, starting with the prison part. It's very clear that most people who end up in prison, and certainly for any substantial periods of time, uh, uh, have uh, fed a certain kind of demographic profile. And, and, and the relevant part here is that they had interrupted education. They didn't successfully complete school or they didn't do well in school or, you know, many of them did not complete school. Uh, and, and that's true. It does not necessarily mean that, you know, uh, they got kicked out of school, that they ended up in prison because they got kicked out of school for some minor uh, violation. Um, um, uh, you know, so, but, but there is a connection between the, 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 the failure to be engaged with school and the complete school and ending up in prison. Now, for some of those people, and we don't know what percentage it is, um, it's a direct connection. As I said, you remember, I started this conversation by citing the Texas Discipline Study, Breaking Schools Rules, mm -hmm. where they found that kids who are repeatedly suspended, repeatedly suspended, are, are expelled, are much more likely than, than other kids to end up in the justice system within six months, right? So we know that there is a theater there, but the truth of the matter is that people end up in prison for, for a lot of reasons. It's not all related to something that happened in school. Uh, but, you know, go back to the prison end of it. Uh, if you want to fix that, it's best to, 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 to promote social policies and sort of alternative approaches to discipline and, right. and the like that keep kids engaged with school. So it's what pretty are, what clear are that if kids are engaged with school, they're less likely to end yeah. up in an incarceration system. What are those alternatives? So there is a relationship, but I would not overstate it. Right, right, right. Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, so when you mention those alternative sources or those 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 different means that can disrupt that interruption in education, what are those alternatives that you're mentioning? Well, um, you know, the way you should handle uh, an incident in school or a situation in school, it, it, it depends on what the it is and what the behavior is. It's not one size fit all. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I think there are a number of things going on. Uh, one is something I've alluded to already. If, if, if students don't feel that they're treated fairly, then they become, they develop negative attitudes about school. Um, even if they end up going to school, well, they're more likely to drop out. But even if they end up going to school, they, it, ends, it, 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 it tends to kind of ruin their attitude and, uh, about being there, and they lose respect for adults. And so uh, you, you want to make sure that, that students are treated fairly, even in a discipline process and even in, the, you know, in, in, in an investigation of an incident, you treat kids fairly and you grant them due process and make sure that all voices are heard and that people can bring forth the relevant the relevant kind of information. There, there's, there's, there's no magic to all of this. There's something inherently positive about, in, in terms of outcomes, uh, about uh, having a fair and, and sort of due process 
uh, for kids whenever something comes up and for folks to have a voice in explaining kind of, uh, you know, what the deal is and what happened. I mean, we've seen issues, we've seen instances in schools where the kid who was victimized was the one who was kicked out of school uh, because, you know, it's kind of like, in the NFL, sometimes when you watch the TV games and you see a fight break out amongst players, you know, it's usually the person who threw the last blow that gets thrown out of the game or gets disciplined the harshest. But that, you know, that could, taking it back to a school context, I mean, sometimes it's kids trying to protect themselves when they've been bullied or repeatedly bullied and they're, right. you know, kind of fighting back. So there are a wide variety of things. I mean, but it has to start with treating people fairly, having them give, having them access to a, a fair process, being able to state what it is that's going on, um, and not just like grabbing you and saying, you're a bad kid, you're out of here. So you've got to establish a climate of fairness where kids trust the system and trust the process. Mm. Um, and that's one thing. The second thing is if you – if if there are conflicts between groups of students, depending on the nature of the conflict, um, that have developed over time, then there are any any number of kind of uh, ways that you can intervene, whether it's a form of mediation or restorative justice or restorative practices, which is like restorative justice light, um, or there are, uh, you know, what are called student courts, where the students decide what the appropriate way, does a panel of students decide what the appropriate way to handle a situation would be when it's brought to them. We're, we're experimenting with that in, in various parts of Pennsylvania, including at one school in Philadelphia and, and a school at high school in Chester, Pennsylvania. Um, and uh, with younger children, there's something called school-wide positive behavior intervention and support. Uh, it tends not to be an such an effective program when you talk about kids at the middle and high school level. Um, but, you know, so there are, are a number of, of, of approaches and types of programs, but, but the bottom line is that what you want to establish in a school is an environment in which everybody in that building feels that there's kind of a climate of respect. And, and let me kind of break that down. I've talked about there being problems. Um, when when kids don't feel that they're being treated fairly, even when, you know, they know that discipline is a possibility or that it's probable. Um, but there's another side to that, and, and the other side to that is the kids can tell when the adults in a school system, in a, in a school building, don't respect each other. And so that helps feed the climate of disrespect in a school, too. And I've seen that in a bunch of schools. Some of the some of the schools that are most out of control are ones where you can walk in there and listen to what people say to each other, how they talk to each other, and you can see it's like nobody respects anybody there. You know, adults don't respect each other, um, and that contributes to a very negative climate um, that, that spills over into students as well. And so what you need is, you know, you, you – you, you may want to bring in a particular program or particular people to train the school staff or the trained students, and, um, and, and that may be an appropriate way to handle it. But the goal is to really establish an environment where people are committed to communicating with each other, they're committed to being fair, even when somebody does something wrong. And there's now data in the, in the, in the past several years to show 
that that's more likely to have a, a, a peaceful end in terms of creating an environment than just suspending the hell out of everybody. Uh, we know from the research as well as practical situations that there's no relationship between sort of high suspension rates and a peaceful school. <laughs>